This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. I was reading Bud Selig's book, and in his book, and I quote, says, The building of Camden Yards was really one of the most important points in baseball history. It really changed a lot of things. How does that make you feel? You are listening to Front Office Features, and I am Rob Crane, where each week we have a discussion with a sports executive in an effort to take you behind the curtain to learn more about the inner workings of the business and provide insights to help start and grow your sports business career. Our guest is Janet Marie Smith, who's an executive vice president for the Los Angeles Dodgers in charge of their ballpark design and planning. And today, when we talk with Janet, who, by the way, is going to go into the Major League Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown for her efforts in changing the game of baseball. She's going to give one of the most authentic real interviews we've had here on Front Office Features. And she designed Camden Yards in Baltimore. And Bud Selig, in his recent book, called it one of the most important points in baseball history. Ladies and gentlemen, baseball has been played for like 200 years. It's a big deal. So she's going to take you uh, behind the curtain, take you into the boardroom about what it takes to design a ballpark, some of the things that are most important. And she did this all while balancing a family life. And I just think she is nearly superwoman. I have so much respect for her. I really enjoyed this conversation and hope you do too. So please enjoy our conversation with Janet Marie Smith, Executive Vice President of the Los Angeles Dodgers. Good after good morning. As we sit here today, uh, you're listening to Front Office Features with Rob Crane, and my guest today is Janet Marie Smith, who is the Senior Vice President of Planning and Development with the LA Dodgers, and uh, has a million side projects going on, including one, you know, building a minor league ballpark in Worcester, Massachusetts. Janet, uh, good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you very much for for doing this. So. Um, I find your story incredibly uh, interesting and what you've done with your career, just uh, I, I just find it incredibly interesting. But you started off in Jackson, Mississippi, it's where you grew up, in incredible social changes, not only in the South, but in America in general. How do you think that shaped you going forward? Well, I think um, growing up in Jackson, in a city, uh, and with the kind of uh, the kind of social changes that you refer to, I, my, I, were, was really an important defining factor in my um, interest in working in public projects and things that bring communities together. 
because Jackson was and still is a community that needs to be brought together. Yeah. And I always loved the city. I, I, we, we lived in the city, but I always loved going downtown and the urbanity of downtown. What was it about cities that uh, you just well, have this love for? It, I don't know, but I just distinctly <laughs> remember uh, everything about it, from my mother not wanting to wear high heels on the grates to, uh, <laughs> to the department stores and the just energy of these you know buildings that were sort of immediately adjacent to each other and... Um, I always thought there was something magical about the mix of uses that you find in an urban center. And so I, I, I guess somewhere in there I always wanted to work on that. So that's where you fell in love with cities and the, uh, you called it urbanity of, of, of that. Was it the, and talk about the unity that you said it really brought, you feel like cities really bring people together? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's, it's, it, it, downtown belongs to everyone. It's, uh, it, you know, it, it didn't uh, seem to be like many uh, suburban communities where they sort of belonged to the residents and um, they were sort of self-defining. Uh, downtown seemed to belong to everyone, and I, I, I love that. I love that sort of sense of uh, being alone, alone in a crowd. I love the sense of, uh, you know, people uh, coming together, whether it's for music or shopping or food or just uh, stroll down the street. Yeah, the, the, uh, everything they can do, the mixed use of um of a city is just uh is, is just really enjoyable so one city that you end up going to as a young woman is los angeles and you go to los angeles and you go to a ton of dodgers games by yourself is that true yeah it is true and is this yeah. where you fell in love with baseball or well, why did you do that i'd probably rewind the tape oh. a little bit so when I was in college, I was studying architecture at Mississippi State, and the um, the architecture building was on the edge of campus, and so was the baseball diamond. So I kind of had this like mm-hmm. thing, like we were out there, we were out, out there on the edge of uh, of the world. It felt like um, together. And then I moved to New York right after college, and I love going to both Mets and Yankees games. Just again, yeah. sort of the energy of the place and how how different that was than. Um, any other place I ever went, you know, it was just the same as going to Central Park, you know, to me, that kind of energy. And then when I lived in Los Angeles um, in the early 80s, I, I did go to a lot of games by myself because I worked downtown and I lived in Silver Lake and Dodger Stadium was like halfway between and I used to do a run in the evenings in Echo Park, which was a stone's throw away from Dodger Stadium. And it was just sort of part of my world and it was so easy to slide in and get a ticket and I, 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 I just always thought there was something really nice especially in a city like LA that at least at that time didn't have the same sense of community to me that I had found in New York and um, I sort of found it in the ballpark. Did when you were going to the games when you looked at you know Yankees the old Yankee Stadium and, uh, and, and, and Dodger Stadium did you look at it and be like, man, I can feel a career in this? Or did you just like no. going because it was fun? No, I didn't think of it as a career at all. I thought of it just as a, actually the opposite, I guess. It was sort of a, 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 a way of getting away from my work for <laughs> a few hours. Um, it's a nine-inning vacation. Yeah, right, <laughs> nine-inning vacation, exactly. It's well said. Um, but I, I liked, I was working on fairly large urban projects in both of those cities, and so sort of looking at how people use the city and who was going to games and 
the, the food and the music and the rituals of the, with the players. And uh, I, was, I was living in L.A. when uh, Fernando Valenzuela sort of came up and sort of how he changed the way we thought of Los Angeles and sort of the cultural icon that he became and still is right. um, uh, almost 40 years later. So all those things really um, just resonated with me. And then when I, um, I guess like a lot of baseball fans, I was, you know, I, whenever I went down on a trip, I would go see another park. And um, one year, I, I guess it was 1987, uh, maybe 87, 88, I went to Memorial Stadium in Baltimore. Um, and uh, I was sitting in the stands and just kind of kibitzing with people around me. And someone in the stands told me they were going to build a new ballpark downtown. And at first I thought, eh, I don't know about that. Like, this is a pretty nice old shoe park. But I had studied Baltimore when I was in urban planning school in New York. And I knew that Baltimore had reinvented itself uh, after the riots and after the industry had left downtown. And they'd done that by building an aquarium and a science center and doing a waterfront promenade and a convention center, sort of putting this collection of uses downtown that would bring everyone downtown. And all of a sudden, I, like, not, not then, not right then, but like a few months later, I had this eureka moment. I thought, well, actually that makes all the sense in the world. Like, just put another two million people downtown and you can, you know, you, it, it's, of course Baltimore would do that. So that's when I got to be in my bonnet about wanting to work on that project because then it fits sort of the narrative of what I wanted to spend my career doing, which was working on big projects in cities that, that changed the nature of the city. So that's in, so December of 88 mm -hmm. is when you reach out to the president of the team, which is Larry Lucchino. And tell me how that first meeting went. I want to hear, I've heard the grandiose story before. Uh, I actually want to hear the real one. <laughs> well, I'll give you the real one. It's got, it's got a little bit of a backstory too. So I wrote a letter first to the Maryland Stadium Authority because I had read that they were the ones who were building the ballpark. And, um, <clears throat> the then executive director, Chris Delaporte, called me when he got my letter. And he said, you would be so perfect for this project, but you don't want to work for us. You want to work for the team because the team is going to be in charge of the design. He said, you really need to reach out to Larry Lucchino. So I went back to the word processor. That really <laughs> dates it, right? That computer is the <laughs> word processor. Redid my letter and wrote to Larry. And uh, then I got a form letter that said, we're sorry, there are no positions available. And I, it phased me none. It was like <laughs> two sentences long, and I'm like, no, that is a form letter. Like, I'm not paying any attention to that. So I um, I continued to try and get him on the phone and see if I could get a, a time set up with him. And uh, that worked out, and I went to meet him at his office in Washington. And we um, he had a room full of the drawings and the master plan, which had been, um, well, was in the process of being authored by RTKL. And we had, uh, you know, a traditional interview. And uh, then he said to me, well, do you have time to look at the drawings? It would be nice to see your reaction to it. And I, well, of course I did. I'd flown there for the interview. I, it wasn't <laughs> like I had anything more important to try to get that job. So I said, of course. And I went in the conference room and stayed an hour or two, or three, I don't really know how long, but long enough to kind of go through things. 
and then went back in his office and, you know, told him what I had seen. And I, I, I felt very good about, I mean, I felt very good about my ability to interpret what was there and how it could be changed. And I thought at the time that the strength of the master plan was where the magic was and uh, that the drawings still looked pretty, uh, they were still pretty much um, formulaic. And, uh, and I, I, I think I probably said that. Um, and I, I always remember he said to me, well, that's, that is why I think this could work because as a, you know, as a lawyer and as someone who studied ballparks and I had this, this, I had this passion for this one to be special and be more intimate and uh, return to the, asymmet the asymmetry that made baseball more interesting as a game, may put fans closer to the action, um, and, uh, you know, the scoreboard in the field of play. I mean, he had a litany of things that he wanted to see. But he said, you know, the trouble with architects' drawings is they're always so precious right the drawing itself is always so beautiful and the model is like a little dollhouse and yeah. you know I, I don't know if I'll recognize it until it's built and then it's too late and that is why I you know I think we all feel like you know we're, we we come to our, our workplace with a combination of skills we've learned uh, and uh, experiences that we've had. And sometimes we have this little innate thing that we just can do. And so while the ability to read drawings and the ability to see things was part of what I had learned, both in architectural school and then through experience, there, you know, I just, I, I, feel, I, can see, I feel like I can see things. Like, you know, that's what I've been trying to do is sort of see things. And so I really felt I could, I could help take his words and turn them into something. Um, so the part of the story that I think is most often told is not all that boring stuff, which really to me was the meat no, of the interview. But Larry said to me, now look, we hadn't talked about baseball. He said, so he said, I got to ask you this. He says, uh, and he pauses for a minute and he says, um, what team has the designated hitter? And, uh, as he tells the story, I said, uh, well, I'm offended by the question, but the answer is the American League. <laughs> so I just wanted to make sure you knew some baseball. <laughs> like, yeah, no, I mean, I, I that, that's one of the things I uh, I love about you. Is you said, uh, you know, offended by the question. You said that the ballpark was formulaic. And when you got your form letter, you said, no, 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 no. That's not going to be the answer. So there's always so much fight in you. And I just think it's a... Uh, 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 something that I look up to, so that's just I love I love seeing that. So you guys are just starting into Camden Yards. What were some of the guiding principles that you were you and Larry put together as you started going down this road that no one has ever gone down before? People are building Three River Stadiums and they're you know circle concrete donuts in the middle of a parking lot, and you're doing the exact opposite. Well, listen, Larry had this, he, you know, people throw the word vision around a lot, but Larry really did have a vision for this being an old-fashioned ballpark with modern amenities. It became a real catchphrase. It's been applied to a lot of things. But he had this list of things, and you know, I mentioned a few of them before, the intimacy of the ballpark, seats close to the playing field, uh, a small amount of foul territory relative to the, the, the round multipurpose parks anyway an asymmetry to the outfield, a scoreboard in the field to play, an upper deck that was really close to the playing field. Uh, you know, it, it, as things went on, sort of the whole color of returning back to a park-like color instead of the multicolored things that had been defined from, you know, Shea Stadium on. And 
you know, the thing that I think is really amazing, uh, and I felt it then, but it, it, hindsight even is more powerful, it couldn't have been made real but for the fact that the public sector, through the leadership of William Donald Schaefer, who had been mayor when all these things like the Aquarium and Science Center were built and had beca- become governor. He was the mayor of Baltimore and bu- became Exactly, uh, governor, governor of Maryland. Maryland. And he said, look, we're going to build a new park. We're not losing the Orioles. We've already, as a city and state, lost the NFL team. We're not going to let the Orioles go. We're going to find a way to, to finance this. And he, the, the state famously commissioned the study to look at different locations. And as I recall, Governor Schaefer said, well, I don't care what the study says, as long as it says put it in downtown Baltimore. <laughs> and, you know, he never lost his love for the city. He never lost his conviction that these collection of uses could really make a community. And his intuition, if not his learned side of him, I can't say which, was that the same city that was home to 300,000 people per day in the various office buildings would have enough parking, enough bus service, light rail service, train service, roads to build this ballpark that could accommodate some, you know, 45 to 50,000 people every night and not have to spend a lot of money on infrastructure. And that was so true because if you look at like Kansas City, which um, had built two stadiums, a football stadium and a baseball stadium, built them out in the suburbs, they spent as much money on their infrastructure on getting the the, the uh, off-ramps and stuff for their oh, highways wow. as they spent on the stadium itself. Well, in Baltimore, we spent like $6 million doing a single off-ramp on one of the, the, one of the two highways that goes directly to Washington. At the time, Washington was very much a part of the Baltimore market, and so that easy access to the, to the district really made a difference. Uh, but it also made a difference to the financing because it meant that the ballpark was what the money was going into, not all the roads and parking and, you know, train and infrastructure improvements. So those two men and their their common interest so aligned because without the downtown site, Larry's dream might have been Disneyland. Yeah. But without Larry's passion for this urbanity and a community park, a neighborhood park, something that fit in to the area, Governor Schaefer's dream might have just happened to have had a downtown address and not really been of the city. And what was so important about Camden Yards wasn't just how it addressed the the checklist that Larry had, but the overall ambiance of bringing the promenade into the 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 ballpark district so that for instance utah street which runs parallel to the warehouse which mm-hmm. we saved um is is an extension of the ball of that public promenade so on a day like today it would be open and you can go and walk up and down utah street and watch the grass grow at camden yards <laughs> and take in the sculptures uh in the picnic area or the hall of fame plaques that are along the the Utah Street itself, and then come game time, the Orioles put up a turnstiles at either end, and voila, it's part of the concourse. So it was an attempt to not only be sort of architecturally uh, relevant in an urban setting, but had the behavior be very relevant. It's incredible. It's like you just, you, you change the game. So I'm reading um, Bud Seal. I was reading Bud Selig's book, and in his book, and I quote, says, the building of Camden Yards was really one of the most important points in baseball history. 
it really changed a lot of things. How do you feel? That's the commissioner of baseball. That you, Baseball's been around for a long time. How does that make you feel? Well, it makes me feel like Commissioner Selig absolutely got it right because people would often ask me over the years since Camden Yards opened in 1992, what are you most proud of? And there are a lot of things I'm proud of, and it, it, it ranges from the ability to save the warehouse and find uses for that it, to the scoreboard clock and how it fits in with the overall composition of the diamond. But the thing I'm most proud of is the way it changed how we thought about cities and the way it brought baseball and fans back into the urban center. And so nothing is more gratifying to me than seeing uh, the city of Denver, the city of Pittsburgh, the city of San Diego, San Francisco, you sort of go on down the list, recommit themselves to their city and find a way to bring sports back and thus millions of people a year back into downtown. It's a pretty heavy thing. You were a part of a team that like changed America, really. That's amazing, isn't it? <laughs> crazy. It's That's crazy. amazing. So your next project takes you to uh, Atlanta with Ted Turner and Jane Fonda, and you're taking old a different project. You're taking old Olympic Stadium and making it Turner Field. What were some of the totally different challenges what were some of the challenges that you faced there that were different that made you kind of excited about that project that was different than Cambridge? Well, it was totally different, but it was um, it was a treat to work for Stan Caston, who was then the president and CEO of the Braves, and who I'm working for now in Los Angeles. So uh, it's kind of fun how both Larry Lucchino and Stan Caston uh, have been so important to my life and my career. Um, but we can come back to that. Um, Stan really wanted to make certain that as Atlanta was building the 1996 Olympic Stadium that they did not fall into the trap that um, that the Expos had in Montreal of moving into an Olympic Stadium with a sport that really was designed or should be designed for an audience half the size of an Olympic venue. So he had sort of muscled our way into the design and planning of the Olympic Stadium so that it could be designed as a baseball field first, built as the Olympic venue, and then immediately after the Olympics, modified for the original plans, which was to support baseball. And it was um, it was really amazing. If you look at the 1996 Olympic um, Stadium, you'll see it's got the not the perfect round oval that we associate with the Olympics, yeah. but a round oval with a little elbow in the corner that <laughs> was going to accommodate home plate. And so that was really important for the city of Atlanta. And I think, um, of course, time time uh, sort of tells a different story uh, than, than the short term. The um, city of Atlanta uh, didn't want to run the risk of going through condemnation to try and acquire land for the 1996 Olympic Stadium. They just wanted to get it built on a piece of public property they already owned. And the only one they owned that was large enough for that was the parking lot of the then Atlanta Fulton County Stadium. So it was built probably further away from downtown that in hindsight uh, we would, well, even then we would have wanted it, uh, but it was what we got. Yeah. Uh, and um, so I think when the Braves elected to leave there after 20 seasons at Turner Field and build and uh, you know outside of the city, uh, it was um, 
it, it, it made you realize that, um, well, 20 years isn't as long as it seems, yeah, you right. know, <laughs> right? Only one generation. Um, and it's, uh, it's, it's too bad that it didn't last longer, but it was an important part of Atlanta's history. And I think of, um, of the Olympics in particular and the way it made Atlanta feel about itself. And Atlanta maybe grew up that moment, you know? The yeah. Olympics were really important in defining it, sort of moving from being a, the capital of the South to, you know, a major United States a city. World, a yeah. world-class city. Yeah. So this whole time from Atlanta, you are raising a family with three great kids, and you're doing this all while traveling. How, can you give some advice to the young uh, sports executive women that are out there? Like, how do you do that? How do you build your career while building your family and seemingly, you know, having it all? Well, I don't know if I have any advice, but I can <laughs> tell you. I could tell you that, well, first of all, marry well. That's number one, right? So I had a great, I have a great husband who was, uh, you know, an active participant in raising our three kids. A patient boss, Stan still teases me about having all three kids on his watch. Um, but it was, um, I had a, we had a routine. Um, and typically I would spend three days in the office, so I would leave. Baltimore early on Tuesday mornings and get to Atlanta by the time uh, the sun came up it felt like 5 40 a.m. every Tuesday <laughs> you still remember and, and the flight I do <laughs> absolutely I remember the flight attendants I remember everything about it and uh, and then I would work until Thursday night I'd come home on Thursday night and then I would work from home on you know Monday and Friday and uh, then my husband who was running a company then it wasn't like he didn't have a, 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 a major job himself would try to organize his travel so that his travel would span over into you know from Sunday to Tuesday or from Thursday to Saturday so that one of us was always at home and um, the nice thing about working from home on, on Monday and Fridays was I could always be counted on to be the carpool the cupcake the birthday party the yeah. after tennis I could I could do those things and I could do them freely because the three days I had been in, quote in the office I mean that was three days and nights in the office you know I didn't have any any, any anybody to go home to so yeah, right. it would be really you know very intense times and so um, you know every day was very different but it all kind of balanced out in the end I, I think <laughs> I, I think so well we, we work very closely with your son uh, Bart who is a uh, who is an amazing young man and uh, and doing great work on our uh, on our ballpark uh, here in Worcester, uh, and I think too, I think it's scary for a lot, you know I've had the opportunity to work with a lot of great young sports executive uh, executives who are women, and to be able to feel like they have to choose one or the other, but you don't have to choose one or the other. You can have you can have them both. Well, I, for me it was really important because I love my job and. Um, and I love the paycheck, too. I mean, let's be honest, yeah. you know, raising three kids and, uh, you know, that's not inexpensive and, um, you know, it's all the things that come with that. So um, I always felt like there was something to be said for the children having a sane mother and if working kept me sane, <laughs> it was, you know, that was just the way we were going to have to do it. So it's kind of funny if you ask them today, um, I don't think they really 
I don't think they could tell you what my schedule was, yeah. which, which I think is great. Like, I don't think they really remember. Like, they just... They don't remember that it was I, Tuesday, Wednesday. Yeah, just, I don't they think they really home. remember, and I don't think they have any question, but I'm their mother, you know, so... <laughs> so in 2002, Larry Lucchino calls you again about saving Fenway Park. They were the only ownership group that wanted to save Fenway Park. Everyone else wanted to build one. What did you think of that initial phone call? What was I the was, ambitious uh, I mean, I am telling you, that was an amazing call. He called me in, like, December of 2001. He said, I think we've got a shot at this. And it was so important to me because when we opened Camden Yards 10 years earlier, 1992, um, the Red Sox brought a big contingency down to tour Camden Yards, and they were so excited because they felt that it proved that you could build a new Fenway that had the charm of the old Fenway, but be new. And um, and I toured them and their city council people around and showed them Camden Yards and was very proud of what we had done in Baltimore. But I just was pained with the idea that we would lose Fenway. I thought here, one of the few standing ballparks from the early classic era, it had been very much a model and a reference point for us in Baltimore. And, of course, I'm all about, you know, recycling things, including buildings anyway. So I just it was pained by that, but it wasn't my place to comment on someone else's project. And so when Larry called me and said that, um, that this was what he and John Henry and Tom Warner wanted to do, I just thought, wow, this would like be a chance to pull this thing from the brink of disaster. And... Um, and that's the way I felt the whole time I was working for him in Boston, that the renovation uh, and additions that we did to Fenway Park were really about a mission that was much more important than just baseball uh, in the Commonwealth. That was really about saving something very important to America and demonstrating that um, that that the kind of renovation that we were undertaking was a, <clears throat> sorry, I hate to say it, sort of a, a noble effort. You know, yeah. I mean, it felt like we were doing something more important something than just baseball. And I always enjoy telling people the story of what we did because everyone knows things like the green monster seats, which were added uh, to this uh, iconic wall in left field, or, uh, or, or about uh, the closure of Jersey Street and adding that. But what they often don't think about is that that isn't really a true renovation. Many of the things that we did were essentially using real estate differently, using a city street differently, building the seats over a city sidewalk, taking uh, a building that the Red Sox had owned for 50 years in the Geno building, or the Fenway garage in the outfield that they'd owned for 40 years, and using, appending them to Fenway, not just having them exist next to Fenway, sort of tearing, literally tearing down the walls between so that the footprint of Fenway and the fan experience was expanded but the architectural elements still look the same. So from my understanding, you know, there's the, the obviously the Green Monster, as you see, we tore the glass down of the old 406 Club. But from my understanding, and correct me where I'm wrong, your favorite renovation is not the Green Monster seats or the glass or any of that kind of stuff. It's actually the right field concourse, the quote-unquote big concourse out in the outfield. Uh, that I, is that rumor true? Well, it is in that it was probably the most 
under, uh, it was a, it probably made the most difference. You know, the green mon monster seats are so fun because of their notoriety. And they were done, well, they were done for all the reasons that you might think are obvious, but they were also kind of a litmus test of how the public would receive changes to Fenway. And the public, of course, including the City Landmarks Commission, uh, the State Preservation Review Board, and the National Park Service, who eventually reviewed everything because we were using historic tax credits. Mm -hmm. So we did have this national input, too. But what I loved about the big concourse is that it was found space. You know, we were used to a Fenway Park that had very narrow concourses, very small uh, restrooms, no ADA access, no cooking in the concessions in the outfield. The bleachers at that time actually had chain link fence and, and barbed wire <laughs> that closed them off. So if you entered the bleachers, that's where you stayed during the game. There was no milling around. And the idea of the big concourse was so um, big because it more than double the size of the, the concourse itself. It gave us a 360 around Fenway Park. It gave us the ability to do a full commissary in the, laundry, in the Fenway garage, the laundry, also known as the laundry building, a full cooking kitchen, um, things like a family restroom, a place for autistic kids, a kids area, our retail stores, and yet when you walk through it, it looks the same. It looks like because, it just was part of it. Because the buildings have still have been there since 1934. And we opened that project. We didn't finish in time for April. We finished in time for May. So the first two homestands, we just had Bisqueen up. So the first homestand that was open was in May. And I, I remember being out there. And we added an elevator. I mean, we, I, I could go on and on about the things that happened there. So I was out there listening to what fans would say, sort of expecting oohs and ahs. My favorite comment was from this guy who was walking down the, the concourse with his friend. And he said, you know, I was here for the opening day, and they painted the whole thing since then. <laughs> and I thought, well, that's kind of amazing. Like, we just spent $10 million on this project. But if that's the way he wants to, if that's the way he remembers it, then we've done our job. Uh, they, 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 it, it flowed so seamlessly that it's like, <laughs> oh, yeah, they put a coat of paint on the place. That's, uh, that's fantastic. Um, so now you're in the midst of $200 million projects. We'll talk about the one in L.A. first. The Dodgers, $100-plus million project that you're... Uh, working on Dodger Stadium. And I'm just going to pause real quick before we get into that. It's got to be so cool. You're watching the World Series, right? You're working with the Dodgers and then with the Red Sox. To be part of the World Series and have the World Series being played in both of your ballparks, it's got to be like That was amazing. Yeah, it was amazing. The 2018 World Series, if the ending had been different, I would have felt better because <laughs> um, as much as I love working for the Red Sox, um, the years I've been with the Dodgers have been so happy and fulfilling. And um, I think there's a natural tendency to always say love the one you're with, but I don't mean it quite as flippant <laughs> as that. You get to know a team, um, both its front office and the culture of the team itself. And one thing I have re really just loved, loved, loved about Los Angeles is the mix of cultures there and the sort of authenticity of um, of the representation of Los Angeles at Dodger Stadium. It's now the third oldest in baseball. It's, it's, the, it's the largest 
with 56,000 seats. And that's like the largest by a lot because look, even Yankee Stadium in New York opened in the four, you know, with, with the number that started with a four. So the fact that as of the All-Star game, the Dodgers here in 2019 had had 17 sellouts is just amazing. It yeah. tells you something, I think, very validating about baseball in Los Angeles and about the way this the, the city and, and, and our fans look at the club. And what I love about this project that Stan Caston has us working on now is it's a continuation of something we started in 2012 when Mark Walters and his and Peter Gooper and their partners at Guggenheim Partners bought the club and that was to take Dodger Stadium and its 1962 footprint and expand on the fan amenities that are there. I mean everything about Dodger Stadium still has its 1962 postcard view with these pastel colored seats, these folded roofs in the outfield. We re <clears throat> restored the hexagonal scoreboards but we built these new plazas at every entrance um, that have retail stores and food service and kids areas and big new restrooms and they're all carved into the hillside with lots of landscaping so it's not your traditional concourse there's not really a concourse at dodger stadium on most levels it's built into the hillside and very much a part of the landscape beauty that is Southern California, and in particular this location, looking out over Elysian Park in the San Gabriel Mountains. But because it's built uh, and carved into the hillside, it has no real front door. And Stan Caston has wanted <coughs> us to <coughs> have a front door. Um, and this whole uh, project is about taking advantage of the fact that the, that Metro has dedicated buses from Union Station to South Bay that stop in center field, that the, that the ride share and the way our fans walk to the stadium is different than the way it has been the last 50 years. And this idea of the center field plaza and the renovation of those iconic outfield pavilions I think really will be a real defining feature of Dodger Stadium while preserving the postcard view that makes it so legendary in baseball. So take us into a meeting room, whether it's at Fenway Park, Dodger Stadium, Worcester, Massachusetts. What are some of the things that are, you're talking about, that you're discussing? You know, let, uh, let us be a fly on the wall about what goes on in those meetings. What are you guys talking about? Are there, uh, what types of discussions are, are being had? Well, the thing that I, that I think dominates every conversation is the word fan experience. Not that that hasn't um, changed over the years, but the emphasis on it, I think, is uh, just reached a crescendo. And in the 30 years that I've worked in baseball, I think that has become just a, a, a something that every club thinks of as second nature. And certainly the project that I'm doing now for Stan Caston with the Dodgers and what Larry Lucchino has us working on in Worcester are very much a part of the fan experience. There's a, you know, it used to be that we were looking at baseball and just trying to figure out how all those seats could be oriented toward, toward center field and, and toward, the, toward the infield and how we could uh, design the scoreboards to convey information and 
uh, how we could support the game. And I think the emphasis today is a recognition that uh, fans come to baseball parks for not just baseball, but for the whole sort of camaraderie and social experience. Uh, I think especially in, in minor league baseball, um, that's very much a part of what brings fans out. In Major League Baseball, you know, people always come come out, you know, I, well, I'm the exception maybe with my single <laughs> single uh, party, but a lot of times, you know, you have one in a party of three that's a serious baseball fan and everybody else is there because the atmosphere is fun. And so this idea of how we can do that in a way that continues to grow the game and make baseball relevant in an ever sort of challenging environment in sports and entertainment, I think is really um, the, 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 the key. I feel like Major League Baseball, with fan experience being really the leader of everything, is really going into a minor league model. You know, Kansas City just uh, renovated their ball, I say just, maybe five, six years ago. And they've got a carousel, they've got uh, mini golf, they've got video boards where you can like race the mascot and the fastest player. They've got big kids areas. Uh, you had a big, there's a big sandbox out at Petco Park. It seems that the major leagues are starting to go the, uh, the minor league model in saying like, hey, we need something else to do than watch yeah, a three and, and a half hour I, baseball game. You're absolutely right. I, I, and I, I think, you know, I think both, you know, the minor leagues look at the major leagues for sort of that, um, you know, that sort of over-the-top experience. But the major leagues look at the minor leagues for exactly as you say. You can't always count on uh, a winning franchise to bring fans out. There's nothing like it. But you can't always count on that. And so what else are you going to do? What else are you going to provide in the ballpark that really makes it uh, work for everyone? And I think just our expectations are different, too. I I think no, no matter where you go, you go go out to the movies, and no longer are we happy just sitting at the movie with a bag of popcorn. Now we've got full meals and the bar and the you know the whole the whole the whole way we approach how to use our leisure time sort right. of blends a lot of things together in, in a in a great way. You yeah, know, I mean, all, it's really a lot of fun. It's all about improving the experience, whether you're at the movies. And by the way, I haven't been to a movie theater in probably ten years. <laughs> so you're gonna have to tell me about what's goes on there, um, and then but just the experience in general of most things, right? Even like going to the store. So now you're in the midst of building Polar Park, AAA affiliate of the Boston Red Sox, building in in, um, in Worcester, Massachusetts. Uh, what's different as you design Polar Park in a minor league? You've uh, you've done uh, multiple spring training facilities, but what's different about minor league baseball? that you find exciting that's different than anything that you've ever done? Well, the scale is wonderful. I, yeah. I think um, one of the things I enjoyed most about working uh, for Peter Angelos and the Orioles at Smith uh, Stadium in Sarasota or, or Stan Caston's assignment uh, to me of doing the Dominican facility for the Dodgers um, is just the sheer scale of a project like that is so much fun because you really you can really wallow in every detail. You yeah. really have time to think about things, uh, not that you don't in the major leagues, but you just it's it just is so personable yeah. and uh, such a human scale. And so that's a lot of fun. And it's also interesting to be in a community like Worcester, which hasn't had been home to baseball for uh, at this level now for anyone's 
lifetime memory. And so what fans are looking for is really new and refreshing. And it's nice to be in a new community and one that's got as much storied history as Worcester does, being home of the diner and home of the space suit and home of the Harvey Ball smiley face and you could go on and on and it's uh, I think it's going to be like none other because the city itself has so much personality. And as you're designing this and you're looking kind of towards the future what do you see in the future of, of, of ballpark major league minor league doesn't matter what's what's coming up next the, the technology so in, inter, intertwined but what do you think is kind of coming up next or what do you see a future ballpark in 10 years 15 years well i think let's use worcester as an example because one of the things that's so interesting about worcester is that uh the city is working with a developer in dennis dowell to take uh acres of a former industrial piece of property and the industry left a generation ago and it's very hard to chip away at a piece of land like that and this development that includes the baseball park, hotels, residential office, parking garages, street improvements, it's so much at once that I really do think it will be a transformational project for the city of Worcester. Now, everyone likes to use those terms, transformational <laughs> project, but I really think this one will be. Uh, the city has done such a good job of uh, fueling development in its traditional downtown the canal district has, um, through just sort of the sheer, you know, uh, guts of individuals, has kind of grown up organically into a really robust entertainment district. And Polar Park and its associated development will knit those two things together, I think, in a really, really amazing um, and convincing way. I agree with you. I think you're, you and Larry have the vision of, uh, the, of Polar Park and the uh, and really, just your visions of. I'm anxious to see what happens in. Uh, well, listen, in LA. don't uh, underestimate what you bring to this no. because your ability to corral the business community and um, the the people who live in that region to support this, I think, gives us all not only um, a, a hope and respect for them and their community, but it sort of is a frightening obligation of look what we've got to deliver now. Look yeah, what we've got I to live up to, you know. So. <laughs> That's really amazing. Uh, it's a lot of fun, and uh, this was a lot of fun, and uh, I really appreciate you taking the time in your busy schedule uh, here, and uh, I'm just so thankful that you would uh, come on uh, Front Office Feature. So, Janet, thank you so very much for thank being here. Thank you for today. having me. I appreciate it. Thank you. I really hope you enjoyed that conversation with Janet Marie. I know I sure had a lot of fun speaking with her, and I think my favorite part of that whole interview was when she got the rejection letter from the Orioles, and she said, no, no, no. F that, I'm going to figure out a different way on how to get what I want. She just showed so much grit, so much resolve, so much determination. I just find that admirable. Um, so I hope you enjoyed the uh, I hope you enjoyed the conversation. I'd like for you guys, I'd like to ask you guys to follow us on our social sites, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, uh, my LinkedIn. Uh, my partner, Chris Valente, his LinkedIn. And we also have a front office features LinkedIn as well. Um, all of that, you can get up-to-date information. And uh, we just like to have a good time. Plus, uh, if you could give our podcast a five-star review, be much appreciated. And uh, share this thing as much as you want. Um, we're trying to get the word out and trying to talk to more and more people. So thank you again for listening. And we'll talk to you later this week.